welcome to the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. My name is Brendan Lee, and on this podcast, I speak with researchers, teachers, and experts about what evidence-informed practice is and the nuances involved with actually implementing effective and sustainable school-based education. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge the land that we are all on today. I am on the beautiful land of the Darug and Gundungurra people in the Long Blue Mountains of New South Wales, Australia. I would like to pay respect to the elders both past, present and emerging who are the traditional custodians of this country. As we learn together today, I would like to extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. This land always was and always will be the land of the First Nations people. In this episode, I speak with Dr Jenny Donovan, CEO of the Australian Education Research Organisation. Jenny has led some of the heaviest hitting bits of research in Australia. Through her current role with Aero and previous one with New South Wales Centre for Education Statistics and Evaluation, Jenny has been behind the teams that brought cognitive load theory to prominence and highlighted the lack of evidence behind programs like Reading Recovery and Language Learning and Literacy, or L3. Funny story about when the L3 paper was released, and I remember having discussions with my school speech pathologist and feeling like we had to do it secretly because L3 had heavily influenced teachers at the school, and she was the only one I felt safe to talk about it with. I'm sure that many of you have similar stories. Throughout this interview, we discuss her journey into education research and the importance of evidence-based practice. She emphasizes the need for teachers to understand how learning happens and the role of explicit instruction. Jenny also addresses the challenges of implementing evidence-based practices and the resistance that can arise. She highlights the importance of a whole school approach and the role of school leaders in supporting teacher improvement. Additionally, she discusses the purposes and benefits of standardized tests like NAPLAN. Jenny then shares her transition to error and the opportunities it provides for national level impact in education. So here is my conversation with Dr. Jenny Donovan. Really excited to be speaking with Dr. Jenny Donovan today. Jenny is the CEO of the Australian Education Research Organisation, or ERO, and has previously led the New South Wales Centre for Education Statistics and Evaluation, or also known as CC. Jenny, are you able to tell us a bit about your journey into the position that you're in today? Yes, thanks for having me, Brendan. I'm really happy to be able to have a chance to talk to you. I was a high school teacher. I didn't plan to be a high school teacher, but that's what I ended up doing when I, after I went to university. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I was teaching history and English, and I did some professional development as a teacher, and it really transformed the way I thought about my teaching the importance of assessment, how to use your time really effectively as a teacher in the classroom to enable learning. Long story short, off the back of that, I was asked to consider a move into the the New South Wales Department of Education to help set up a new assessment of secondary school students' literacy skills, which I did. And from there, took on a lot of other sorts of roles in the New South Wales Department over a number of years moved for a little while to the University of New South Wales. But to get to this role, I think leading CZ was the key because we set up something new. We we took a proposal to the then Minister for Education to say, Minister, who was Adrian Pickley at the time, we're about to get all of this funding off the back of the first Gonski deal and we're going to be pushing it into schools because that was the plan in New South Wales. 
we want to know what they're going to be doing with it and we want to be able to tell a story of of where it's worked this is this is going to be important for us it's a big opportunity so we need to set up mm. a center for education statistics and evaluation and and it can be the mechanism for kind of monitoring how we're going and he agreed he he saw that it was a smart way to kind of get ourselves ready for what he could foresee at the time would be ongoing conversations about funding and from the Commonwealth, etc. So doing that work meant I got to lead a centre which did um, research into what works, what are teachers doing, um, what's effective, uh, what changes when you give them extra resources, uh, what are teachers doing that maybe isn't as effective? What do we need to understand about the, the ways that we're spending the resources across the state, etc.? And that was a fantastic opportunity. I got to build a team. I got to uh, learn all sorts of things about what do you do with good research? You, you, you don't want it to just be known by a, a handful of people who sit around the department executive table. You actually want it to be known and used by people out in schools and the, the school leaders and the people who are helping deliver professional learning and all the rest of it. So lots of really relevant lessons in that. And as a result of CZ and the second Gonski review, when they came looking for how do we, how do we invest the education dollar wisely to make sure that students are getting good learning outcomes. They came away having had a look at CZ saying, this this is working well in New South Wales. We need something like this at a national level. So I put my hand up for that role and got it. And here we are. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, you, you make it sound like it was uh, such a simple path, but I'm sure it was anything but. <laughs> and, you know, just kind of backtracking a little bit and going back to your time as a teacher, mm-hmm. Did did you start to ask questions when you were actually in the classroom and, and start to wonder, like, you know, is there a better way of doing things? And, and did that start to kind of push you on the path that you're now on? Oh, absolutely. I, I, I had a fear often that what I was doing was busy work. It was, I planned my lessons. I was a very conscientious teacher and spent my weekends doing the lesson planning and had a, knew what I was going into the classroom to do and what I wanted them to get out of it. But in amongst it, I felt like there was a lot of kind of time filling rather than really active learning happening. And I thought that was correct because the whole lesson shouldn't be driven by me all the time. That wasn't the way I was trained and wasn't what I was led to understand was engaging for students. And then I did this PL that I was talking about. It was actually into how to effectively teach writing and thought, gosh, if I was explicitly teaching them all of this stuff, then chances are they're going to learn it far more effectively. And there won't be any of that time where I'm just kind of distributing a worksheet or saying, okay, here's a question, ponder it by yourselves we're going to be busy and we're going to be cracking on and I'm going to be feeling like um, they're learning and they're going to be feeling really engaged throughout the whole time. You know, it just worked really well for me. I was in a school in what was in the MetWest region and we'd gone through Australia's version of learning styles. You know, there was lots of subcults of that thing here and I think ours was accelerated learning. It was a version of multiple intelligences and it was pushed really hard 
and it just did nothing for me. I could not see how burning incense in the classroom was going to engage students any better in their learning. And this PL really did it for me. And then putting it into practice, it worked. Mm. Yeah. And so going back to that time when you were in the classroom, how, how did you think learning happened then? And how do you think learning happens now? Oh, <laughs> I, I think that I did my teacher training in the 80s and it was very uh, informed by a um, constructivism, a, a progressive ideology. We did a lot of, there was a lot of theory about social justice, which was all fascinating for me, I have to say. I'm, you know... I'm a historian. I'm kind of really interested in that stuff, but mm. there wasn't a whole lot. I never got taught anything about how students actually learn. Uh, I'm, I don't recall really being taught about theories, particularly. There was practical experience, and that was great because I went to Macquarie University. We got practical experience from a really big range of different kinds of schools and contexts. And I had supervising teachers who are absolutely crap <laughs> and some who were inspiring and brilliant. And I learned a lot from that. But going into the classroom, I think I bought into the idea that learning is innate. Children are naturally curious. If you immerse them sufficiently, then they will thrive and absorb and what you've got to do is be engaging and entertaining and they'll just want want to learn and it will magically happen. And I sort of thought, okay, and I, I set out to be engaging and entertaining and, hmm. um, and, it, and it helps. There's no doubt about it. You know, personality, it, it is a, a relationships matter in the classroom, hmm. but... Uh, as I said before, I, I did feel like a lot of what was going on in my classroom was busy work. Now I understand why I think we all are at this point in, in, in education where so much is happening at once. There's always been a lot of research around what is effective teaching practice, you know, right back to the 60s and all that empirical data derived from project follow through gave us a really clear story about what works. If you want students to learn, these are the practices to use. And it was a really robust methodology and it, it got buried for all the reasons that we know and certainly was not a feature of my teacher education when I was at university. Um, since then, we've had developments in cognitive science that have given us insight into how does learning happen? What are, what's happening in brains? What do we mean by learning? What's going on in the brain that we can then describe as learning? And our understanding about the role that short-term memory plays versus long-term memory, the importance of managing cognitive load to be able to learn effectively and efficiently for the long-term, all of this new understanding matches the practices that we knew about since the 60s. So explicit instruction matches the way brains are designed to learn. So it's kind of, it's now less surprising that project follow through delivered the outcome that it did. It's uh, tragic that it wasn't then the way that the world turned and pivoted and, and set about going about their teaching and their teacher training. 
Um, but now we're at the point where we can say, not only does that work, we know why it works. So there are no excuses anymore. That's that's just what we should all be doing. Yeah, you know, it's funny that you you spoke about project follow through because it's it's one of those things that happened so long ago in the sixties and seventies, and we're only really starting to hear about. And and it just gets me thinking all the time about like you know how many lives could have been changed if we actually followed through with what those recommendations were at the time. Yes, you know, and it, it's mystifying like, too because it it speaks to all that concern about social justice. Mm. Madly, the the students who come from disadvantaged backgrounds are more disadvantaged because they don't get the access to explicit teaching practice that students from advantaged backgrounds get. So, and we know that that was a piece of research that I did back in CESI using the PISA student survey data where they self-report about the, the practices that they're exposed to in the classroom and the frequency. And we were really interested in that and did a, a kind of correlation between what they were reporting and their NAPLAN outcomes. We were able to use the student identifiers and join the data sets. And it was clear there to us that the students saying, I, I get access to this explicit practice, were the ones getting better outcomes. But then we disaggregated by the, their SES, uh, the sense of their social, socioeconomic status. And lo and behold, the students who are already disadvantaged don't get the same access to that practice and they have the lower outcome, learning outcomes. We know about this. And if we care about social justice, it should be a no brainer. We want to close equity gaps. We we go about teaching in the right way. Yeah, it's it's it sounds so simple <laughs> and it sounds re- really straightforward. And but like I, I know that you've led uh, a lot of pretty heavy hitting bits of research over the years. I'm sure you would have received a bit of kickback over that time because some of the things that you're talking about there, while it seems like it makes sense, for some reason, there's always a lot of um, pushback despite the research. Yes. Why do you think that is and how have you dealt with that that pushback? Uh, Why I think it is, uh, teachers go into teaching because they they have good intentions. They're creative people, they're thoughtful, they see that teaching is about good relationships with students, they think they can help, they're oriented to problem solving and they work hard. And so they think that what they're doing is the right thing to be doing. There's nobody, I guarantee it, there's nobody working in teaching who is deliberately setting out to do something they know is going to fail. They're doing it mm. because that's the way they were trained or it was the way it was modelled or it's the expectation of the school or they believed what they learned at uni or whatever. So the the reasons that they're that, that everybody in Metropolitan West latched onto accelerated learning and started bouncing balls instead of teaching, reading, using phonics was because they thought that that would work. They really did, not because they thought it was nonsense. The why people struggle with the, the challenge of evidence-based practice, I think, is because it does seem very different to what they've been taught is the right way to go about. And you'll often get the kind of pushback about explicit teaching, oh, it's that traditional practice, and we've done that before and it didn't work, and which is so untrue. <laughs> it's, never been, mm. it's never been rolled out in a systematic way in Australia, for, for sure. So mm. the idea that it's traditional is just a bit mystifying. Um, it gets 
it gets aligned with, you know, uh, labels like drill and kill and memorization and rote learning and these are all supposed to be bad things for students and they're unnecessarily pejorative terms um, they skate over the fact that a, a little bit of memorization is actually a really good thing for long-term learning and, and embedding knowledge in the long-term memory and, and they kind of associate an explicit teaching a practice with some sort of authoritarianism when in fact explicit practice is about a really effective practitioner who is dedicated to a learning outcome. If, if the students haven't learned, then you haven't finished the teaching, you haven't been doing it right. But to get back mm. to your question about some of the, the kind of more challenging, provocative pieces of work we've done, the, the standout one when I was at CESI was probably reading recovery and the evaluation that we yeah. did of that, which had been many years in the making as far as I was concerned. I attempted it on many occasions before finally got Seezy up and running and, and found the authority to do it. it. It demonstrated quickly that our investment in reading recovery was uh, misdirected, that it was not effective. It was uh, effective in a sh very short-term way for a very small cohort of students, but for the vast majority of students who were being targeted for reading recovery, it was not only ineffective, uh, for some of them, they were worse off by doing reading recovery. And none of that surprised me because reading recovery, there's no relationship to the science of reading and the way that we should be going about teaching for reading in the first instance and and providing systematic intervention if if the student's struggling to read further down the track. Reading recovery was never going to be the answer. But discovering that wasn't necessarily welcomed with open arms by a department that was spending mm. $50 million a year on it and had been for mm. well over a decade, two decades probably, or the, the phalanx of reading recovery tutors who whose jobs depended on rolling out this program, or the schools who had large cohorts of students who were struggling to read, and if we took away reading recovery, what, what were they going to offer? So the approach that we had to take was to acknowledge you, you can't just take something away without offering something back that's going to be a better yeah. alternative and a more attractive one. So we actually had to slow down. We did that evaluation, but it was a couple of years before we were then in a position of the New South Wales Department being willing to say, we're no longer supporting this program because by then we were ready to roll out a synthetic phonics uh, um, a module for teachers to train them into how to go about the teaching of reading and to provide them with alternatives with decodable readers and resources and the professional learning they needed. I suspect there's still probably pockets of reading recovery happening in New South Wales. There'll still be the people who were devoted to it and, and ardently believed it worked, but the data says otherwise. It, it didn't. It was harmful for some. Yeah, a few things that you spoke about then made me think about how it's so easy for us to be affected by that sunk cost fallacy where you, you put so much time, effort, money, resources into certain programs or ideas. And so then it can be so hard to move away from them. And, and you know, you just mentioned, was it $50 million that the department had invested in, in reading recovery? So there's a lot of people who have made some pretty big decisions around this. You also spoke about the, the thought process that went into actually really going, going hard at this. 
did you did you have like a, a team where you were kind of strategically thinking about what you were going to do when or was it a bit of trial and error? Uh, because I think a lot of teachers, while they might not necessarily be aiming for change at this, the sort of scale that you were leading mm. it at and, and are still leading at, but a lot of teachers are trying to lead change within their own yes. schools. And so, you know, some of the things that you're talking about there, I'm sure would still be quite relevant to what t- teachers are trying to do within their own yeah. schools. Look, it was interesting. I was in a very fortunate position in the department of being in the department but allowed to behave as though I was somewhat independent of the department. Um, And somehow that was tolerated for a while. So it it gave me the imprimatur to do this kind of independent research. Yes, we are providing some feedback here on something the department's heavily invested in, but got to tell you it's not working. I was allowed to do that work and to apply a little bit of pressure around, therefore, we've we've got to remove this program. But I also had the opportunity of working with some really fine people in the department about the way we go about doing that so that the system is offering support to people in schools, not just kind of taking away dollars and bodies and and a program that's been beloved by many over such a long period of time. So there were some fabulous people in uh, the directorates have all got different names now, but in the curriculum directorate, for example, who worked really closely on, okay, we've got to set up uh, a thoughtful, staged approach to how to manage this. And lots of respect for those people because they were kind of front line of having to explain to people in the in, in schools, basically, that they're no longer going mm. to receive funding to support this staff member doing this thing, but the alternative will be is can be provided to them. Uh, New South Wales is quite good at behaving like a system. I mean, that's what it is. That's what it's for. The system needs to see itself as offering support and guidance. You know, there's a bit of an open question, which I'm quite interested in actually about to what extent should the system drive and to what extent is it appropriate for schools to operate with some autonomy. But in this instance, I think the New South Wales Department got the balance really right. Hmm. And so looking towards the future and and thinking about like, when other big ideas or, or, or programs come forward and we're looking at that sort of system level, how can we prevent this from happening again in the future where something like reading recovery is just rolled out across the system when it has very a very weak evidence base? Look, I am quietly hopeful that the work we're doing at Aero will help to inoculate systems against the next fad. I feel like the... The conversation has really changed. Ministers have put their money where their mouth is. They've set up this agency. We are directed to identify the evidence base and make sure it's available, and which we've we've done, we've continued to do. It's it's hard for them then to totally ignore what we say. Say so yes, yes, we hear you about that science of learning stuff and how important explicit instruction is, but we think we'll go and invest in project-based learning and that will be our focus. You know, it's just, it's more mm. difficult for them to do it now because we exist. The other thing I think is there is more appetite for well-designed evaluation. I'm not saying for an instant that it happens routinely 
all well in education. It's still something that we're being dragged kicking and screaming towards, but more often now you will see a new project that begins with an evaluation design. And I'd probably quarrel sometimes with the how robust the methodology is and you know who they've got to do it or whatever, but there, there is clearly more often now a little voice at the back of everybody's mind saying, should we just, if we're going to put money into this, let's be accountable for whether or not it, it works out and it's, it proves to be a good investment. So I, I think we're, we are guilty in education of, of succumbing to fads. We love the new shiny thing. We're always, as I said, teachers are problem solvers. They're always looking for something that's going to help. But maybe we are getting a little bit better at approaching the next new thing with a little bit of prudent caution. Hmm. Do you think it's anything in particular that really drives these fads to make them popular? Sorry, can you repeat that? I missed Do you think there's anything in particular about these fads that really drives them to make them popular? You know, is there like a common theme amongst things like, you know, reading recovery, Bounties and Pernell, inquiry-based learning? What sorts of Uh, things, yeah, makes them popular? It's often that appeal back to the kind of progressive ideology that I described was the feature of my teacher training and still is in many of our faculties of education. It is still the way teachers are told they're going to be most effective is if they buy into this belief that children are naturally curious, they are natural learners, of course they are, but (laughs) it's very easy to naturally learn how to walk and talk. It's not at all easy to learn how to naturally read because it's a biologically secondary skill and you need to explicitly teach it, but that's a whole different conversation. I, I think when the next fad is dressed up as being, students will love it, it'll be engaging, it'll it'll feed their their natural curiosity, it's, uh, it's deep learning, it's student-led and student-centered. All of these words, are appealing to humans who are pursuing a career that is about helping other humans. The the misguided bit is about not realising that these fads don't help. They waste time, and that's the least of it. The worst of it is they can be harmful. They can actually inhibit learning for some students. So, you know, we, we need to be alert to it and, and we're combating it by saying there is a robust evidence base for what works. So if you're being offered something new and shiny, have a look at it through this lens. Is it is it teacher-led? Is it using an explicit yeah. practice approach? Is it focused on mastery learning? Does it incorporate assessment? You know, there's a, a set of easy principles that you can apply. And if it's if it's not doing that, then chances are it's a time waster. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting thoughts there. And, you know, like moving on to looking at initial teacher education and that sort of level and thinking about what sorts of things need to be happening to ensure that our beginning teachers are being set up for success. So, you know, when they're entering the classroom, they're actually ready to teach and, and there doesn't have to be all these misconceptions corrected and they should feel like they're ready to go mm. after four or five years of, of education. What needs to happen? I think we need to be really clear with them from the outset that teaching is uh, about the learning, that it's not just about what they do 
it is about ensuring that what they do results in learning. And and I think we've got a long way away from that uh, understanding that that's the point of the exercise because we let too much teaching happen without learning resulting. So I'd, I'd be taking it right back to being very clear that uh, this doing teaching is about ensuring learning happens. Um, I was on the teacher education expert panel that Mark Scott led last year and we came up with a, a very strong recommendation about there needing to be a core curriculum in initial teacher education because there's too much evidence to suggest that what we've been doing over decades isn't delivering the kind of teachers equipped to do the kind of teaching we need and that was accepted completely by the education ministers. They said, yes, this is what we want and here's the time frame, so make it happen, universities. The core curriculum is about making sure teachers understand what I was describing back at the beginning about how learning mm. happens. So your job, if you're going to be a teacher, is to make sure learning happens. Let's understand how that happens. And once you understand how learning happens in the brain, Let's now think about the implications for you as a teacher. How, what do you need to do to ensure that that learning is happening? And the thing you don't need to do is stand in the classroom and say, oh, this is a real example, actually. Let's spend the next 10 weeks with you having unlimited access to water play so that you can discovery learn displacement theory. It, <laughs> Whether or not learning's going to happen is a big question mark. Are the kids going to have fun? Yeah, for the first little while, and then they're just going <laughs> to chat amongst themselves. It, you know, it, I think being clear about explicit instruction being an expectation of the job is about being clear that because learning is the outcome that we're driving for. Um, I, I would uh, ensure that uh, practicum experience is as broad as what I had access to, but managed in such a way that teachers get to, they learn about the core curriculum, they learn about the importance of explicit practice and assessment and mastery learning and good classroom management. In their practicum, they get to practice it. They get to have a go and they get good supervision, which means they get a bit of coaching and they get to improve. They get proper feedback and they practice it again and they see for themselves how practice improves their practice. I'm using the ones with the S and the C in this sentence here. I, I think that there's a huge variability at the moment in the quality of the, the practical experience that teach, the initial teacher education provides and we could do a whole lot better at that. The other the other big one that was called out in the TEEP review was classroom management. It's It just is barely a feature of a whole lot of initial teacher education at the moment. It is the thing new teachers are crying out for. It's the thing that's driving them out of teaching in their first couple of years. Even teachers who've been in the classroom for some time wish they had better advice, better instruction, better models for good practice. So it's got to be something that gets talked about in a really frank way in the initial teacher education so that there are chances for teachers in their preparation to practice and have a go and see what works and why it works and how to do it and where to start so that they're classroom ready. We need to set yeah. them up to succeed. Yeah, everything that you're saying sounds great, but I can't help but think about how difficult this all is to actually implement mm -hmm. and when you're talking about within every university or initial teacher education provider, 
they need to have the staff that are yes. knowledgeable and have the skill set to actually follow through with those things that you're talking about. And, you know, a lot of those people have been academics who have been pushing potentially other ways of teaching or other pedagogies. And so how do, is it like, is it something where we've just got to say, look, this is what you have to do and this is how you're going to do it. And there's going to be like a team that's going to go around and, and checking for understanding and, and, and seeing if these recommendations are actually being followed through with. Are we at that stage yet where people are actually thinking about how this will be rolled out? There was a lot of detail provided in the TEEP report, which AITSL have taken up and has been baked into the guidelines for universities. I think you're right. It's definitely a challenge for them and not all of them are excited about it. It is going to be a big change. There are existing processes in place that are designed to ensure that teachers are doing what they've signed up to do and have agreed to do uh, so that they will be accredited as providers going forward. Um, There's a new kind of mechanism being built in that ministers have also accepted, which is uh, a quality assurance board. So in addition to the existing regulatory authorities, there's going to be an independent board of people who have the role that you kind of described of checking in, making sure that they're doing what they're saying, said they, they were going to do or what they would, that the composition of that board hasn't been announced yet, but that's in development as I understand. And the intention is it will provide that kind of rigour and independent oversight of the implementation of these changes that the ministers have agreed need to be put into place. But you're right, it, it It's a challenge. There's plenty of guidance in the work that was done by the panel about what does that new curriculum need to look like. It's not not that hard. People who work in universities are meant to be all about the research. So the research is Mm. all there. (laughs) It's doable. We've just written a, a... effectively a a curriculum for teaching classroom management for another piece of work that we've been doing at Aero, which is all about how do you prepare for disruption in your classroom? Because it's pretty inevitable. Kids will try it on. So as a teacher, as a new teacher, as a beginning teacher, as a teacher who's new to a school or a casual teacher who's just coming in, how can you tackle that to make sure that you optimise the learning time? Because that's the point of the exercise. It's not to subdue the the natural curiosity of the violent children, it is to ensure that your classroom is an environment that's conducive to learning. One of the schools that I'm working at at the moment have just started implementing a behaviour curriculum and just the the calmness in the classrooms has been just so noticeable. Even, even like our office lady has been walking through the class and she said, what's going on here? You know, the kids are so settled and, and so calm. And we just explained to her, like, it's because of this behaviour curriculum and teachers have been really intentional with teaching the routines and expectations and following through with it, having that whole school approach. And it, yeah, it's it's made a, a world of difference. And you just spoke about then before uh, about how when you have new teachers coming in and, and beginning teachers, you know, we've got teachers that are, are starting mm. out at, at the start of their career and, and where now, like as a school leader, I feel confident in knowing that I am actually providing the support that these beginning teachers mm. need rather than, you know, saying, all right, off you go, you, you're qualified now, you'll be right, and, and which is what we've done in the past. And we know that we've got such a high attrition rate when it comes to beginning teachers. Mm. And if we just let them kind of fail, yeah, we're, we're going to keep struggling as a profession. Yes. 
totally great can i bring a camera crew to your school soon because <laughs> the next thing we want to do is do some videos about what it looks like in practice yeah for sure <laughs> and, and you know like so looking at that sort of level now and, and being inside schools what are some key considerations that school leaders and schools can be thinking about when it comes to teacher improvement it's a really good question and one that we're quite focused on at the moment at Aero. It it works better just about anything that you think of if you take a whole school approach. If if every individual teacher's got to figure out for themselves what they're trying to do, use classroom management as an example. If you've got a teacher who thinks, right, this isn't working for me, there's kids are not learning well I'm going to attempt to do something new it's really hard for them to do it in isolation if the students are going to go to somebody else's class in the next period and the expectations are completely different or there's no mechanism for escalating if the disruption gets beyond what you're willing to accept inside your classroom the whole school approach is really necessary for the classroom management behaviour curriculum that you were describing earlier, but it's equally important for the approach that we're going to take to the teaching of writing, for example. Writing happens in every classroom, across every learning area. So if you're going to go about uh, ensuring that it's done really well, do it across the entire school. It's about all of your staff. So that, that's a kind of, it's something we've understood for a long time, that things are more effective if they're tackled at a whole school level. That means that the, the school leader needs to be the chief advocate for the thing that you want to do. doesn't mean they need, to, by the way, to be the instructional leader on it. Some of the best examples I've seen have been schools where the principal has said, I don't know about this, but I'm going to make sure that you have the opportunity to learn from this person over here who does. So the, the role of the principal, the school leadership, is to make the time available, is to clear away the other stuff and make that time available for the teachers to get their head around, first of all, the rationale. Why are we doing this? What's the evidence base for it? Why do you think it's going to work here? and then get to the what does this mean for me and how well I need to change my practice. And and that whole conversation needs to be carefully and respectfully done for all the reasons I said before. Nobody in a school is doing the thing they're doing because they think it's the wrong thing to do or it's a waste of time. So you're going to have to put the pitch to them about why this thing to do is the better thing and why it's important for us all to buy into it and all to try it and all to you know kind of sign up to it. I don't, I think we underestimate often how much time is needed, not just to learn about a new thing, but to be given the right opportunity to practice it and, and have a go and ideally get somebody to come and have a look at you doing it and give you some feedback so you can try it again and get better. You know, that kind of, we talk a lot about the importance of collaboration as teachers, but you've got to carve out time to do it if you're going to do it meaningfully and for it to lead to the improvement that you want to see. And the school leadership's got to take the responsibility for enabling that, I think. And obviously for things like the resourcing and where it's appropriate for communicating what this means for the school community, for the parents and the students. And often it's a really helpful way to kind of crystallise the rationale if 
you need to explain it to them as well. Let's get this into something that's really clear and uh, absolutely about the welfare of the students, the benefit to the students and their learning. You know, the, the discipline of, of getting that com communication right can really help the the kind of the the reason for the approach in the first instance, I suppose. It's hard to do, and it's it's hard to do, especially at the moment, because we've got a workforce shortage. You know, it was hard to do a few years ago because we had a pandemic and we weren't even inside our own classrooms. Anything worthwhile doing is probably hard, but there are ways of making sure that it isn't wasted effort, and that's that's the challenge for the school leadership. And it goes without saying, whatever you're going to do, you've got to make sure it's properly evidence-based. And don't just trust someone telling you it's evidence-based. <laughs> Check against my criteria mm. from earlier. Mm. You know, there's a lot of people who'd like to sell you on the next big idea and take over the professional learning of your entire staff for the next two years. You know, sign here. Be careful. Yeah. Lots of great tips there. I, I just wrote down, so when we're looking at teacher improvement, we need to take a whole school approach. You know, so whether that's towards curriculum um, behavior, whole school approach helps because then you're able to kind of work together on whatever you're trying to achieve. The importance of the school leader needs needing to be the, the key advocate. One thing, you know, that not so much push back on, but just kind of ask you about when, when if the school leader isn't, I guess, the instructional leader, how can they make the right decisions around resourcing and, and time and like even what to pay for if they if they aren't the key instructional leader? Maybe it's just the terminology. By that, I mean, I think they do need to be an instructional leader in the sense that they've got the vision for what is the appropriate approach to take. They don't need to be the one with the specific expertise. They don't need to be the one yeah. teaching the synthetic phonics approach. They they can yes. be identifying as the instructional leader, if you like, for the school that this is the approach that we need to take, yeah. but they don't need to be the one sequencing the phonemes or anything like that. They they identify. Yeah. So so would you say kind of like the, the the school leader needs to have, you know, like a base, a good base knowledge of what the evidence-based yeah. practice is and, and, you know, the science of learning. Yeah. But then when we're getting into like the nitty-gritty of that really subject-specific knowledge, yes. That's where they can then, you know, delegate and, and say, oh, oh, you're going to lead this yes. project here, that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. I, um, I think the other thing to be conscious of is uh, I've talked a few times about the importance of practice. You 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 make mistakes. That people fail. They try something and it doesn't work. And there needs to be – you need to be ready to stay the course and, and not give up too quickly and really encourage that collegial kind of opening up of the classrooms and observing one another's lessons and, and being frank and constructive in feedback and accepting that you're not going to be perfect at a, a new approach instantly. There was something else I wanted to say about that too and it's just completely gone out of my head. Never mind, it'll come back. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, I'll, I'll touch on that and, and give you a bit of time to get your thoughts back together. Like, as, as I started to deliver more and more professional learning, I, I was often thinking about, like, I know what I'm saying is backed by all this research, but then when I go in, into classrooms and I'm observing teachers, like, they're still doing something that is nowhere near along what I was kind of hoping they would 
take from my sessions and really got me thinking long and hard about this whole implementation Mm. process and and how we can support teachers in the classroom and those things that you were saying there around how we need to have those conversations but they need to be respectfully done and we're we're working alongside of them and it's it's non-judgmental and understanding how much time it can take because yeah like I was just saying a lot of the times like you feel like that they're understanding the concept whatever it is but a lot of the times initially it's still really quite abstract to yes. them and and until they've had that time to to see it in practice you know to play around with it with, to, to actually see the the improvements in outcomes yeah. it can just take yeah a long time for for teachers to develop expertise in what whatever that you know technique is that they're working on but a lot of the times we we don't give it to them we move on too quickly or we don't actually check that they got it in the first place the the other thing that happens in schools is you are so busy there's so much going on there is so many things that you're excited about and want to try and that that causes a cognitive load problem features um and you've actually got to be a, a little bit discerning about maybe Maybe it's this year's going to be our writing year. We're going to focus on writing and the teaching of writing. And yes, I know our NEPLAN numeracy results aren't quite where we'd like them to be, but this is the thing that we're going to dedicate ourselves to. And, you know, next year can be numeracy's year or something like that. It, it is a, a real trap. There seems to be so much to do urgently all the time. The, the main thing about what we've been talking about is the importance of really good modelling. And yep. it's it's difficult to find sometimes who who is available to model for you and your staff this thing and you can be confident that they are really good because I've heard people say oh we've tried explicit instruction it was awful you haven't been doing it well (laughs) you need you need to learn how to do it better because I guarantee you that the students are going to enjoy good it's explicit instruction they will be 100 percent engaged in the lessons if it's done well and i remember we we have a couple of implementation teams at aero who are deployed into the field working alongside schools to model good practice and develop the skills in the staff it's specifically around aspects of explicit practice and going in to watch them in action in a school and we walked into a, a year six classroom and the teacher had the classroom um it was a flexible learning space, I think it was described <laughs> as, and and it was the whole beanbags, little breakout <laughs> areas. There wasn't a desk and a chair inside. There was a rug to sit on, and and the the modelling of the lesson was done. The teacher himself then had his chance to direct the next part of the lesson, and then the students needed to go away, and it was the kind of I do, we do, you do, and by the time we got to the you do, off the kids all went into their hidey places all over this classroom. And the teacher said, actually, it'd be better, wouldn't it, if they were just sitting at desks and I could see them all. And it was kind of a revelation for him that he was working against himself. On the one hand, here he was on a pathway to being a better explicit instruction teacher but that environment just wasn't helping it happen the kids were disappearing around corners and chatting yeah and and 
like sometimes teachers do just need to have that realization themselves. As school leaders, sometimes we can kind of guide them towards seeing what that, that problem might be in their practice. But yeah, a lot of the times if we if we try to push things onto teachers when they're not ready for it or they're not open for it, yeah, it can be really quite difficult yes. to actually manage it um, at all. So just looking at standardized tests like NAPLAN and, and you know, look, there's there's been some recent changes here in Australia. Like, what do you think of, of the changes and what can we kind of be looking out for as teachers? Uh, look, the, the changes are mostly for the benefit of teachers and students. So that's a good thing. I explained my background was developing a statewide assessment of literacy, which predated NAPLAN. And when NAPLAN came in, all of our state level assessments ended and were replaced by NAPLAN. And and mostly NAPLAN did what we used to have, but not entirely. And now that we've got NAPLAN happening earlier in the year, that's better. It means there's the potential for results to get back to schools much more quickly and they can actually inform what the schools are doing where once upon a time it was there was such a lag that it it wasn't terribly helpful at the student and classroom level so NAPLAN is potentially going to be a much more useful tool for the classroom teacher it's always been an incredibly useful tool at the system level for monitoring whether or not the way we are going about delivering instruction in the key fundamentals of, of literacy and numeracy are working effectively for our students. And if we didn't have NAPLAN, we wouldn't know that we've got a proportion of students in every year who are not reading at the level we expect and need them to be. Um, we wouldn't know that for some specific groups in our student population, they are way behind where we expect and, and um, anticipate they should be. Uh, we did a piece of work last year that used NAPLAN, but in a different way to the way we've used NAPLAN data before. We looked at a, a cohort of students who had done NAPLAN over four instances. They'd been in year three, five, seven, and nine. And we built a data set that linked them all together. So we had all of their instances of NAPLAN. And we looked at what happens if you're in year three and you are below that national minimum standard for reading, what happens to you? in by the time you get to year five and seven and nine. And what happens for the vast majority of students below national minimum standard in year three is they stay there and they get worse. They're even lower by the time they get to year nine. NAPLAN isn't there to tell us that we're getting it wrong and for us not to pay attention. NAPLAN is there for us to say, oh my goodness, there's a proportion of students who are not doing well at reading in year three by year five, we want that proportion halved, not doubled, which is what we see at the moment. So uh, NAPLAN is really important, but we don't use it the way we need to. We've got to, we've got to make a much more effective use out of it. Not at, at the school level, we'll be able to because of the changes, but at the system level as well. Yeah. And so what can what can schools be doing now to ensure that they're actually using NAPLAN properly? Look, that's a good question. I, I, I would encourage uh, teachers to be looking for the surprises in the NAPLAN data. 
um, uh, you often get teachers saying, oh, we don't need NAPLAN, we already know how they're going. Well, that's great. And I would hope that NAPLAN is backing in your judgments about how they're going. But given that it's happening earlier in the year now, maybe you're not as confident about knowing how they're going. So look for where it is different to what you would have expected. Look for patterns and trends in the data across the school. If you're a school leader, be looking at whether or not your school is consistently below the the average or the like schools on specific skills. Chunk it. There's a, a lot of items and a lot of pathways through the items in that plan now that it's a, an adaptive test but you can go into it from the, the kind of subdomain level and look for, if, you, if you're looking at writing, for example, you can look at sentence level features. How, how's my school going with sentence level? Because uh, it's a passion of mine at the moment because we did analysis of writing as well. And our yeah. students are writing worse sentences than they did a decade ago. And we've got an assessment that's meant to help us identify and do better at these things. And instead we do it. But anyway, that's a different hobby horse. There, there are so many ways that NAPLAN can be used and I, it should not be ignored. Yes, it could be improved in, in certain ways and, and I have particular views about the writing assessment, but I see it as a tool that can supplement the information that exists at the school level. I would hope it's only ever supplementing absolutely routine assessment that you are doing constantly in the school. It shouldn't be a a frightening thing for students to have to be part of or something they practice lots for. They should be doing assessments all the time. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee each month, I would really appreciate it if you supported the Knowledge for Teachers podcast. While the podcast will always be available for free, your support will ensure the sustainability of it. By doing so, you will gain access to transcripts, my key takeaways from each episode and more. So if you can head to patreon.com slash knowledge for teachers podcast, that would be greatly appreciated. If you're a larger organization interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact me at brendan at learnwithlee.net. Now, let's get back to the episode. NAPLAN is one of those things where unless you purposely plan in the time, you know, to to look at the data that's coming through and, and thinking about like what you're going to do with that information. Yeah. It can often get lost or because it, there is that kind of space in time between when the assessment's done and when you get the actual results back. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of schools seem to, to just push it to the side or uh, have yes. a glance at it without really going into any sort of depth and yeah, forward planning. I think there's a bit of a, a temptation to, to get defensive as well, probably. And that's probably mm, human yeah. nature, but to get it back and to instantly go to the reasons why we don't look so good there mm. instead of the, oh, we don't look so good there. What's our plan? Yeah, yeah, Make, making excuses as to why you're getting those yeah. poor results. It's the nature or, of our or, you know, or, yeah, you know, we've just made these changes, so we're not going to see the improvements for five years. Or, mm. yeah, it can be yeah, tricky, tricky. Look, moving into your current position at Aero, and, and you've already mentioned a few of the projects that you've you've been working on. But initially, like, what what brought about the change? Um, you know, moving from CC um, onto Aero was it so you could make that impact at a national level, or did the the whole kind of project excite you yeah what made the change oh definitely it was the opportunity to operate at a national level because when you work within a jurisdiction 
you don't have easy visibility about what's happening in other jurisdictions. And occasionally you'll go to a national meeting and meet up with someone and they say, oh, is that what you're, how exciting? Or can we have a look? Um, this this was kind of a, a license to look at everybody and be able to tell everybody all of the stories. It comes with different sorts of challenges, though, because like I was describing with the reading recovery thing, when you work within a state department, you know the people who you need to be working with to make something change. When you're working in an agency or an organisation like I am now at a national level, you don't have the same levers to pull to make changes happen. You kind of have to hope that you can influence and be loud enough and be interesting enough that departments and teachers and school leaders will listen, but I, I, I don't have all of the email addresses I used to have access to <laughs> when I was yeah. working in the department and I could contact schools directly. But it is, it is a great platform to have because of the visibility it gives and because of the opportunity for a really widespread and because we're owned by all of the ministers, we, we are reporting to them constantly about the work that we're doing and we, we hope that that is becoming socialised and cascading down through departments and becoming available and evident and advocated for through the departments. It's, it's kind of... It, the work itself is not unlike what the kind of work I was doing at CESI. I think that was really why I, I was the person chosen for this role because that work was good work and it was high quality and it had integrity and it understood schools and the way people in schools need to work and absorb information. And I got to bring all of that into this role. I've got a different team of incredibly smart people who are delivering high quality work with the utmost integrity, which has credibility with people in schools. So all of that is has been a very nice transition. It's kind of exciting to set something up that's brand new as well. It was exciting mm. with CESI and doing Aero equally. And because we're not within a department, we've had to do everything, you know, decide the colour scheme and develop a logo and create payroll yeah. systems. <laughs> so everything that goes into it, being a startup, I suppose. Yeah. The other thing I'd note is that it has evolved. So we're coming up to three years. And at the beginning, we were very much about uh, demonstrating that there was something happening in Aero for everybody. So if you're a teacher, if you're an early childhood educator, if you're a school leader, a minister, a you know, everybody we could think of, we were trying to do something that was going to engage them and excite them and give them something, offer something to them that could help them in their role. The The second year of operation, I think we really started to focus on, we've told a story now about the evidence base and what we know, what do they need to be able to start putting that into practice? Because it can't just always be about research that sits on a website. We won't change students' learning if we're not also helping people to adapt it, adopt it into their practice and, and change learning in that way. So we, we did a lot more development of resources for practitioners. And, and now I think we're starting to look to the next challenge, which is it's good to have the resources. Now we've got the evidence base, we've got the resources. 
what is it that is going to help them implement that in an effective way mm. um, and sustain it? And, you know, the work I was talking about earlier, our implementation teams, where we're trying to understand how to make change happen in schools, the right kind of change that is sustainable and effective. What do we need to know? What's the magic? And, and can we package it? Can we describe it? Can we give a formula to schools? Because that's, that's a big evidence gap, to be honest. There's a, a thing called implementation science, which we can learn from, but it has not really been used in education. So what we're doing there is a bit cutting edge and exciting, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I spoke to a, an implement, implementation scientist from Cyprus last year, Rosanna Comacito, and yeah, that was a really interesting conversation and, and just talking to her about the different kind of strategies that we can be taking as schools to, to learn from the implementation science. And so what have you learned so far? Loads, including that when you're talking about implementation, you need to be having another conversation as well about de-implementation that you can't keep loading on the next new thing. You actually need to make the case for why this is so much the right thing to do that it's got to replace that other thing you've been doing. You know, we know that workloads are spiraling out of control, so we can't be part of that problem. But that conversation about de-implementation, again, goes back to it's a sensitive conversation because you're saying to someone, this thing you've been doing maybe for years probably hasn't been as effective as you were hoping. Um, and there is something that you can do differently that's better. Yeah. And so looking at what you've currently got, how can schools and teachers use Aero's resources uh, effectively? That's a really interesting question. I would suggest collaboratively that it's really hard to do something all by yourself. We talked about the whole school approach, but this is slightly different. If you're a teacher and you're interested and you come to the website and you think, yeah, actually, I'm, I'd, I'd have a go at teaching sentences differently on the back of what's there. I want to give it a shot. Do it in collaboration with a colleague so that you can kind of bounce off each other when it's worked and what hasn't and look at each other and offer some suggestions and feedback. Don't feel like you've got to do everything all by yourself in splendid isolation. Build up little communities around yourself. There, There's other staff members in the school. I wouldn't try and do everything all at once. Think about what is it that is causing the most angst for you? What are you most worried about? Look at the NAPLAN data. I mean, you, you want to be very certain that your students are where you think they ought to be. So if NAPLAN's going to give you a little bit of guidance or if you need to do a little bit of assessment for yourself, do that and and hone in on the thing that you want to focus on and then look at what we've got that will help. I'd commend the, the most recent material that we've put up around dealing with disruption in classrooms because I think it's really practical and it's, it's very granular. It kind of assumes you know nothing you've never done this before and you've got to walk into a classroom what do you need to know um so it's not intended for somebody who is very long-standing practitioner with deep expertise but it could be the thing that really helps somebody who's embarking on a new environment i would also suggest that we are always interested in hearing from practitioners we've got a newsletter that people can sign up to we've got a panel of of teachers and education and educators early childhood educators and leaders 
um, and we welcome people to put up expressions of interest in being part of that so that you can become part of our community of people who advise us on what's going to work for your secondary maths teacher on that topic. What's what's a better format to be delivering your handbook for classroom management? You know, that you can become part of the group of people who inform our decisions and the way that we're doing our work. So engage with us. Uh, if, if you don't like it and you think it's wrongheaded and it's not working for you at all, let us know. Become part of a conversation with us as well because there is... We, we don't want to waste anybody's time. We don't want to be investing in producing resources that aren't going to be taken up or aren't landing well or hitting the need. I'm not sure if I answered that question entirely well for you, Brendan. Feel free to... Yeah, no, I think there was some... The, the question was around how can schools and teachers use ERO's resources effectively? And, you know, you spoke about not trying to do it all by yourself and working with someone else, you know, to, to look at those resources so that you can bounce ideas off each other and not trying to do everything at once as well. And then you you, you mentioned how your recent release on behaviour management could be quite practical to use. And what I liked about those ones as well was how you did go to that granular level and actually look at specific techniques that teachers can be using. Yeah, yeah I think that's what teachers really appreciate is like sometimes we can provide them with these research overviews but then at the end of the day they they come away from it asking so what does this actually mean for me you know like what do I have to do and so I think yeah having those those really practical resources can be quite helpful I think like having the research is also beneficial because you want teachers to have like that that holistic understanding of like where this is coming from and it just kind of helps shape that mental model of like what it is that we're trying to achieve. I hope so Um, I hope it builds yeah trust as well that we're not dreaming this stuff up (laughs) we've got a standard of evidence and we're not going to advocate for anything that doesn't meet it so you you can have confidence that what we're recommending here is is demonstrated it works and that could hopefully reassure people that they're not going to be wasting their time and and if they come to us there's no risk that they're just submitting to the next fad we can help with that yeah so what's on the horizon for ERA? Way too much, as I discovered today. I've just come from a very long planning session with my executive team and others, and it, it, it's a monstrous amount of work we've got coming up. Look, what is on the horizon is every year we negotiate a research agenda with the ministers. We, we hear from them about what their priorities are, and we document a research agenda, which they say, yep, that, that's what we're keen to know more about. But that's where their engagement kind of stops. They then say, off you go. We, we get to decide what are the projects, how, what are the research questions, how are we going to do this, what partnerships are we going to form, etc. Um, and then we, as I said before, go back to them frequently with reports on how we're going and uh, where it's all up to. So our research agenda for 2024 um, is packed full of interesting stuff. We're doing a lot more data analysis projects than we have in the past, in part because we built that data set I was talking about earlier that that was based on the students' NAPLAN instances. And there are lots of other ways that we'd like to interrogate that for a bit more insight into how we're going as as a national system and where we could be doing better. We are doing a whole lot more stuff for practitioners 
that is informed by the science of learning, by the, the practices that we recommend. We've heard from teachers that that how important modelling is. So we're doing videos of the kinds of practices. We're looking at expert practitioners and chunking it into short videos that, that show you what it looks like. Yeah. We are doing a whole lot more investigation of the multi-tiered support systems. That We identified that last year as what do you do for the students who are well behind where they need to be and identified the research base is is really robust around multi-tiered systems of support mtss we yeah. really need to figure out a more catchy title for it <laughs> which is great so we know now the kind of conceptually what should be done but really drilling into if you know tier one of that is your regular classroom and all the kids in it and making sure that you are using effective practice and you know where they're up to and that they're learning Tier two, though, is going to be at the place that we do a bit more exploration. What what are the good intervention practices that work best in different sorts of contexts and scenarios? So we're doing a little bit of field-based research around that. Lots more on the implementation project because we've really only just begun that. We've had a team in schools now for a year, so we're going to write up some of what we've learned and and expand that project into some other places there's there's so much happening and it's all great i tell every project team this is my favorite project and i mean it every time (laughs) but it just means i have a lot of projects they're all they're all my children i I don't have a single favorite but the i I would encourage people i know this isn't an advertorial but i would encourage people to sign up for our newsletter because we'll push out to you then information about the new stuff as it becomes published to the website so you never miss out on anything that might be of interest yeah for sure and i couldn't recommend highly enough the the resources that have been coming out of aero and going back to you mentioned the writing one i think that the how learning happens resources that were also released last year you were able to kind of deliver the message in a, in a way again which is practical for schools and and with the sort of information that teachers are able to understand as well like again going back to sometimes yeah with the the, the bits of research that can come out it can it can take a while to unpack yes. and and i think there's yeah there's different layers to all of this professional learning where we can offer it like a simplified version and then as as we build that knowledge you know like with our students we, we deliver it sequentially and and build on what they know so That's that they're true. able to develop their expertise in it as well so as we begin to wrap up today's conversation what other bits of knowledge or resources would you recommend for teachers and school leaders oh Gosh, I'm not sure I know what to say to that one. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, we're all a bit obsessed in this agency, I suppose, and there's a continual exchange of the the next new thing that's come out that we're interested in and we, we have to restrain ourselves from diving down lots of rabbit holes and recognising that we only <laughs> have so many hours in the day and so many dollars and people that we can deploy here. I don't know. Look, you can never go wrong, I think, if you kind of follow the, the the science of learning and into what does that mean for practices and it takes you towards things like really understanding cognitive load and what being conscious of cognitive load means in your practice. 
I think people are, are starting to use cognitive load as though they understand it intuitively and they don't quite understand exactly what Sweller and team were meaning in terms of practice. So uh, I think there's a there's a really productive and interesting place to go if people want to want to pursue that. Understand cognitive load and reflect on what mm. it means in practice. It is a fascinating theory and and they haven't finished working on it and finessing it. Uh, it just gets more interesting. Um, I'm quite interested in following the following the, the conversation about AI. I, I'm a little bit skeptical about the claims, both for its um, opportunities and for its dangers. Of course, it's a little bit of both, but I, I think both probably get a little bit overblown sometimes. The, the, the thing that we know is it's not going away. So we've got to figure out how to use it constructively. And to be honest, I've felt a little bit paralysed by not being certain how to pursue it, how to find out about it, what, where to take the research on it. And I've been really shaped by, we've got a, a woman on our board whose name is Professor Leslie Lobel, who wrote a report last year that really helped to kind of contain the conversation we need to have about AI and edtech in education. And her focus was on, we need good design, we need good use, and we need good governance. And I think she's absolutely right, but I don't think we know yet what all of those three things look like. So I'm kind of interested, mm. and I think people in education ought to be interested in where those conversations take us as well. And there's another point yeah. where I feel like my answer didn't quite match your question, but never mind. <laughs> Still equally as fascinating, Jenny. And, you know, like, I really want to thank you for, you know, spending the time to have a chat today because you've had a huge impact on Australian education. And so I really want to thank you for everything that you've done and all the different projects that you've led. I'm not sure if all the listeners would be aware of some of the, the research papers that you have led, but... Like I know that here in Australia, you've definitely had a, a big impact on a lot of young people's lives and, and and I know that that's going to continue to happen through your work with, with Aero. So, yeah, thank you for everything that you do and continue to do and, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation, particularly around the things when, when you're talking about the change management side of things and implementation because I think that's a, a, definitely a space, like you mentioned, where we do need to be thinking really quite hard about, you know, when it does come to implementing the all arrows resources and and other bits of evidence so yeah thank you for discussing all of that stuff and and everything to oh me. brendan thank you i just and thank you for all the kind words but i have to acknowledge the teams both at cz and now at aero they're the ones doing the work and and creating these fabulous publications i i just get to be the conductor so i will take <laughs> all of your thanks back to the team and it belongs to them Thank you. Thanks, Brendan. Lovely to talk. I really loved how Jenny was still striving to do better and continue to learn despite how much of an impact she has already had. Here are my key takeaways. Understanding how learning happens is crucial for effective teaching. Implementing evidence-based practices can be challenging, but necessary for student success. Some of the important factors are taking a whole school approach. The school leader needs to be the leading advocate. Conversations need to be had respectfully. Time needs to be taken into consideration because it is usually underestimated. Communicate to the community. 
Don't just trust people because of their name or status. Don't try to do it all at once. When looking at results from standardized tests like NAPLAN, look for the surprises and patterns and trends. Chunk specific skills together to get a better picture of how things are going. Aero provides an opportunity for national level impact in education and offers resources and research to support effective teaching practices. Collaboration and engagement with Aero's resources can help teachers and school leaders implement evidence-based practices and improve student learning outcomes. As teachers, we need to be aware of AI and how we can use it constructively. I've got some super exciting episodes in the pipeline with maths, instructional coaching, behavior, and the science of learning all getting lots of airtime. However, that's it from me for today. And as always, stay curious, keep learning, and teach with purpose. Bye for now.